my family and I took one uh, the other week. We went to Virginia and went to Williamsburg and Yorktown and Jamestown, Monticello. Just uh, had a great time looking at all the history, and it was beautiful. Everything was in bloom. It was just a gorgeous time together. And one of the things we got to do while we were in Williamsburg is go to a concert at the Governor's Palace, the, the old 18th century Governor's Palace. And that was a neat thing because they were all in costume, right, from the 1700s. They had somebody playing the harpsichord. They had all the historically accurate instruments that they were playing. And one thing they had to do before the concert began was tune their instruments. Now, if you've ever been to a, a concert like a symphony or something like that, listening to them tune their instruments isn't necessarily a pleasant sound, is it? But it's required if you want to have pleasant sounds. If you want them to be in harmony during the concert, you've got to do that. And then halfway through, they had to stop and tune again because they're older instruments. Uh, you're in an unair conditioned space, so the environment can sometimes cause those things to go out of tune. The same is true for us and our families, right? We, we have got to be careful because we very easily grow out of tune with each other and many times there's harmony missing in our homes because we're out of tune. In his book, Untwisting Twisted Relationships, William Backus wrote, he said, Though we expect from our relationships the sweetest moments life can offer, the brutal fact is that what parents, spouses, sweethearts, friends, and neighbors say and do can cause a large share of life's miseries. So we have sweet moments that come from our families, but we also can hurt each other. And one of the greatest challenges that we have is to learn the fine art of forgiveness. Saying, I forgive you, or saying, I'm sorry, or I'm wrong, that can be one of the hardest things for us to say, can't it? especially to our family and our friends because pride, ego, stubbornness, these things make us hold on to sin. They make us hold on to anger and bitterness and, and grief and pain when what we need to do is let them go and release those things. It's sort of like the man who was describing to his friend about an argument that he had with his wife and he said, I hate it. Every time we get in an argument, she gets historical. And his friend said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She drags out everything I've said and done and makes me relive it. And sometimes we do that. Now, we're talking about family goals in this sermon series, but I guarantee you, no matter how many goals you set as a family, no matter what your goals are, at some point you're going to fall short, right? I mean, you may make progress. You may be going in the right direction, but sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. You're going to make mistakes. You're going you're gonna to let your family down, and you're going to be let down. And so we need to engage in some forgiveness tune-ups so we can do as Queen Elsa says and let it go. You're welcome, parents. So uh, let's pray together, and then we will continue in on this message. Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy that we have read about and we have sung about already today, Lord, and, and that through the grace of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, that slate can be wiped clean. And I pray, Father, you would help us to tune our hearts more to yours so that we can more readily forgive those who wrong us as Christ has forgiven us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So I want us to focus on the family goal this morning of cultivating or creating an environment of grace and forgiveness in our homes. How can we, how can we do that? And 
to study that, I want us to revisit a family we've looked at before, a very dysfunctional dynasty in the Old Testament, and that's the family of Abraham and Sarah, specifically Jacob. Uh, What can we learn from this highly dysfunctional family about the power of forgiveness and how we can give and receive grace and mercy? So when we look at the theme of family in the Bible, you've got to go back to the first family, right? Genesis 1 and 2. You've got to go back to Adam and Eve. God created the first family and they lived in a perfect world. I mean, they, they were created in God's image. They were, they were living in a world that was orderly, that was fruitful, that was good. They were walking in perfect harmony with each other and with God. There was no shame. There was nothing to hide. It was paradise. But then in Genesis 3, sin entered the scene. And Adam and Eve turned from God. They tried to hide their shame. And they started pointing the blame at everyone but themselves. And we've begun, kind of been doing the same thing ever since, haven't we? We all tend to do those things. And in fact, the rest of Genesis really focuses on the brokenness that sin brought to our world and ourselves and even our families. And most of Genesis follows that one dysfunctional dynasty, the family of Abraham and Sarah. Now, true, they are heroes of the faith. There are certainly good things about them for us to look at, but their story is also marred by lying, cheating, stealing, jealousy, slavery, hatred, attempted murder. They fit right in with reality TV shows today. But God works through this broken family to bring about the promise of blessing for the whole world. It is through the family of Abraham that Jesus will be born. And so there are two instructive moments that I think we can look at in this sordid tale of these families to help us learn how we can be forgiving people and be forgiven people. And the first thing we need to do, two main points this morning, and the first one is that we must seek forgiveness and restoration. We must seek forgiveness and restoration. Now, we looked at this verse last week, Matthew 5, or these two verses, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, okay, so you're bringing a gift, an offering to the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. It means you've done something wrong. They've got something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So the first step, if we want to create a culture of grace and forgiveness in our families, the first step is for the offender to own what they've done, the mistakes, the offenses, whatever it is, seek forgiveness and restoration. And our example for this this morning is Jacob. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Jacob means hill grabber. And Jacob was named this because literally when he was born, he was grabbing the foot of his twin brother Esau as if he was trying to hold him back so he could be the firstborn. And that really defines their relationship for the rest of their life. Uh, Jacob always seemed to be jealous of Esau's position as the firstborn. He was always looking for some way to usurp that position and to take his place. Uh, And so the name Jacob, or or the term hill grabber, also came to be an expression of someone who was deceptive, someone who was trying to supplant someone else. And sadly, their mother, Rebecca, was more than willing to be a participant in Jacob's deceitful ways. Remember, he already tricked his impulsive brother into giving up his ride as the firstborn. He sold his his, uh, firstborn inheritance to uh, Jacob for a bowl of soup. It's pretty impulsive when, when you do that. But then with his mother's help, Jacob tricked 
Isaac, their dad, into giving Jacob the blessing that would really seal his position as being the prominent son in the family. And not long after, you know, uh, you know, remember Jacob, he dressed up like Isaac, he put animal fur on him, he kind of smelled like, because Isaac had lost his eyesight, so he felt like, and he sounded like, and he, and he smelt like his son, and he brought uh, the meal, you know, Esau was the hunter, he brought the meal that uh, his dad liked him to prepare, so Jacob really had Isaac convinced he was Esau. So when Esau then comes in and learns what has happened, learns that Isaac has given Jacob the blessing, Esau's response is heartbreaking. Listen to what he says in Genesis 27. He burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. And then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. This is a heartbreaking story. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my brother are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so Jacob, the hill grabber, becomes the high tailor. He becomes a man on the run, a run from himself, on the run from God, and on the run from his family and his past. And he runs all the way to his uncle Laban, where Jacob kind of gets a taste of his own medicine. Laban tricks Jacob into giving him 14 years of labor, and he's able to marry off his two daughters, get them taken care of. Well, Jacob then kind of turns the tables on Laban, and he gives, gets him to give him the, ble- the best of his flock, and then he sneaks out in the middle of the night with all of these sheep and with, his, with Laban's two daughters and all of his grandchildren. Of course, Laban then catches up with him, rebukes Jacob for this sneaky maneuver. Uh, and there's plenty of blame to go around between the two of them. So there's a lot of this sort of, like, well, you did this, and yeah, but you did that. And finally, after they kind of haggle that out, they make amends. And they forgive one another, and they're at peace. And immediately after that happens, Jacob decides he needs to go make things right with his brother Esau. It's like this experience of sort of tasting his own medicine, this experience of riding this relationship with his uncle. And, you know, and he's married with kids now. It kind of changes your perspective. And he decides he needs to go make things right with Esau. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 33. I want to look at these 12 verses as we think about the example that Jacob gives us here. Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children, Joseph, Rachel, approached and bowed down. So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face. 
since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you because God has been gracious to me and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Then Esau said, let's move on and I'll go ahead of you. So Jacob goes from being a man on the run from his problems to a man who runs to confront his problem. What changed? What changed him from being a schemer to a reconciler? Well, Jacob not only had the experience of reconciliation with Laban, which remember, Laban pursued him for that. So not only does he have that experience, but he also had an encounter with the living God that forever changed his life and his name. Just before this, on the eve of his going to meet Esau, he has an all-night wrestling match with God that forever changes who he is. Jacob, in that moment, had three interesting things happen to him. The first is that God changed his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. The second is that God put his hip out of socket, giving him this permanent limp, a physical reminder of this encounter, of this moment, And then third, God gave Jacob a true blessing, not one that he had to steal by pretending to be someone else. No, this was a true blessing that God gave Jacob along with a new identity. You know, Jacob had spent his whole life wrestling with his identity, wrestling over who he was, his place in the world. And now no more. Now he is one who strives with God. And I thought about this and... You know, as Christians, we also encounter God. Maybe not in some dramatic, you know, all-night wrestling match like that, but we encounter God through His Word, through worship, through prayer. And as we seek God's face, as we allow His Spirit to shape us more and more into Christ's image, it's like we wrestle with God. We do have these wrestling with God where He shows us our true selves. He convicts us of sin and we confess and we repent. We call that process sanctification. Sanctification is where we are wrestling with God and He's chipping away at the sin in our life, revealing more and more who we are in Christ, helping us to embrace that identity, to answer the calling He gives each of us as ambassadors of reconciliation. And that means that everything we do, we can be at peace. We can be at peace with everyone in our lives beginning at home. That's where it has to start. So think about your life. Who have you been deceiving? What are some of the lies you're guilty of telling? Maybe you've said some hurtful things to your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings. Ask God to reveal to you those you need to seek forgiveness from those that you need to seek a restoration in your relationship with them because God, remember what Jesus said, God would prefer your relationship with them to be right before you try to come and bring worship and service and gifts to Him. That's the order of priority there. So how do we do that? How do we seek restoration and forgiveness from our families? How can we say we're sorry in a meaningful way? And and these are in your notes. First, confess and repent of your sins to God, right? Because no matter what you've said or done to someone else, first and foremost, you've sinned against God. When we sin against someone made in God's image, we've sinned against God as well. So go to God and ask for forgiveness from Him first. Secondly, go to the person that you've wronged humbly and personally. 
You can't right a wrong. You can't restore a relationship through text messages or an email. Don't do that. Preferably, don't even do it over the phone. If you can, go to, that, go to them in person. Let them see your eyes. Let them see the expression on your face. Let them read your body language. That's the best way. Show them that this is a priority for you. Go to them humbly and in person. Number three, transform your justification into an explanation. You know, we, we tend to want to justify ourselves, right? I'm sorry, but... No, don't ever... Leave that out of it, right? If you're, if you're saying, I'm sorry, but you've already just sort of, you know, uh, diffused the whole thing. It, you, that, that's no good. Turn that justification. And don't share the blame. We want to do that too, don't we? We want to justify ourselves and we want to kind of somehow throw blame on the other person as well. That's what our tendency is. We've got to change that. We, we've got to deal with our part of the offense alone. And, and that's an important thing, especially to teach your children. That instead of trying to justify what you did, explain what you did. And explain why it was wrong. Why it was hurtful. Number four, make sure that your apology is genuine in that it expresses true regret, acknowledges your responsibility, declares your repentance that you want to be different, offers repair, and asks for forgiveness. And there's a helpful format you can sort of use that says, I'm sorry for... So, I'm sorry for lying about making my bed this morning, kids. Maybe you might say that. It was wrong because I lied and I disobeyed you. In the future, I will make my bed before you even ask. Right, moms and dads? Does that sound good? And would you please forgive me? So, what you're sorry for, why it was wrong, what you're going to do different, and then asking for forgiveness. And if there's any restitution that you can offer, offer to make that restitution. Those are the consequences that Ben was talking about. Just because someone forgives us doesn't mean there still aren't consequences. doesn't mean that we still don't need to do something to make right what we did wrong, to repair whatever was damaged, to pay for whatever was broken. And sometimes that requires a conversation. That's not always intuitive. So Zacchaeus is a great example of this. Remember Zacchaeus, when he encountered Jesus and Jesus came and had supper with him and he gave his life to Christ, repented of his sin. He went and sold his riches and he gave to the poor and gave four times back to those he cheated. He sought to make restitution. Not so that he would be forgiven, but because he was forgiven. So let Zacchaeus and Jacob be our example. We must seek forgiveness and restoration. And secondly, we must grant forgiveness and restoration. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So here we see Jesus twice makes this connection between our worship and service of God with our relationship with other people. So God doesn't want us to fake being right with each other so we can worship him, pray for him, or serve him. No, he's going to say, whoa, stop right there. What about your relationship with your spouse? What about the way you yelled at your kids this morning? Have you forgiven your brother or sister and what they said or did back whenever? God says, before you go any further with me, make sure you're right with them. Paul urges us the same thing. He urges us to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to be patient with each other, to live in unity together. We heard this in our New Testament reading this morning, that we are to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's our standard. 
Our second example for this is the story of Joseph. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, but in addition to that, he'd been blessed by God with the supernatural ability to interpret dreams. So two reasons why his brothers hated him and wanted to get rid of him. And so they betrayed him. They sold him in slavery to Egypt. They lied to their father that he had been killed by lions, and they were content to live the rest of their lives letting their father grieve over his son Joseph. In the meantime, God was with Joseph. And through a series of unfortunate events, God led Joseph to become the second in command of all of Egypt. And he helped to prepare the country for a coming famine. And when the famine came, all the nations and tribes around them came to Egypt for food, including the sons of Jacob, Joseph's own brothers. Now, we looked at this story in depth a few years ago, and it's such a fantastic story. And I just love to picture Joseph and all of his regalia looking down at his brothers. And he knows who they are. They have no clue who he is. And he literally has their lives in the palm of his hand. He could dish out all of the justice, all of the revenge that he wanted on them. He could do whatever to them. And after some intense testing he put them through to just see if they had changed, to see if if they had learned their lesson, to see if maybe they had mistreated his brother Benjamin the same way that they mistreated him. And, And after, I think, probably struggling with his own feelings about how exactly he should respond, Joseph did the right thing. He revealed his true identity to his brothers and he forgave them. Joseph sent them home with plenty of food and supplies and said, bring your families. Bring our Father. Come and live in Egypt under my provision and my protection. And I want us to now turn to Genesis 50 and just listen to these final words that Joseph gave them, words of of forgiveness and love. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, forgiving others can be as wrong, can be as difficult as if not more difficult than asking for forgiveness and admitting you're wrong. Granting forgiveness can be a hard thing. Both seeking and granting forgiveness requires humility. It requires us putting others and their needs ahead of our own. And so what Joseph says here can really help us overcome our self-centeredness, overcome the anger that we might have, overcome the pride that we might have. How can we grant forgiveness and restoration to others? Two things that he does here I want us to see. The first is he released the past. We see that in verses 15 through 19. After their father's death, Joseph's brothers were worried that he was going to now take out revenge on them. So they came up with this plan. They send a message to Joseph with this story about what his dad said when he died. Now, we don't know if if Jacob actually said these things or not. Probably not. 
But they send this message to Joseph, and Joseph sees right through it, and it breaks his heart, and he weeps. Because Joseph's heart has always been to forgive them. He's not, really has had no desire to hold this over their heads. He forgave them long ago for this, and in fact, he then reminds them that he is not in the place of God. He reminds them that, look, you've got a higher court and an infallible judge to deal with, not me. I've forgiven you. And no matter how much we love our families, no matter what kind of laudable goals we set, we're going to say and do things to hurt each other, aren't we? We're going to let each other down and be let down. We're going to disappoint and be disappointed. It's inevitable. We can't help the hurt that others cause to us, but we can help what we do with that hurt and how we respond to others. And so when the, when the hurtful words and the thoughtless deeds of others do break our hearts, we've got a choice. We can either be angry and hold that grudge and seek revenge, or we can forgive them, let it go, and leave the matter into God's hands. That's what Paul writes about in Romans 12. He tells us, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's, a po- if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we will never find peace and joy in our walk with Christ, and we will never find ourselves fruitful for the kingdom of God if we walk around harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. It's not going to happen. We have got to confront the people that sin against us so that we can forgive them. And so that's something people misunderstand when it comes to forgiveness. There's a confrontational part of this. Joseph confronted his brothers about what they did to him. He didn't sugarcoat what they did to him. He didn't pretend like it was no big deal. Remember, he put them through some grueling tests to see if their heart was repentant, to see if they had changed. But his goal, his heart, was to let that offense go, was to release the pain of the past and move on with living. So if you've been hurt by someone, deal with the issue before it begins to drain the spiritual life out of you. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. But when we let the hurt and the pain that those have caused us to cause a bitter root to grow up in us, it will cause us trouble. It will defile many and we will be denying the grace of God. We will be refusing to treat others with the same grace that God has treated us with. Now again, does that mean that what this person has done didn't matter? No. Does it mean that what they did wasn't hurtful? No. Does it mean you're giving them the permission to hurt you again? No. Does it mean there are no consequences? No. But it means that you forgive them, and I'm going to talk in just a moment about what exactly that includes when we talk about that. But the first thing he did is he released the past. Secondly, he remembered God's providence. Again, he never pretended that what his brothers did was anything less than evil. He knew what they did. He knew why they did it. He was there. He overheard the conversations they were having with each other. But Joseph was able to see that God was using what they meant for evil 
to do something wonderful. God used their sin to accomplish His eternal plan. That's what God does. And in one verse here, Joseph looks back on 30 years of trial and triumph to acknowledge God's hand in his life. Every up and every down. He came to understand that all the hatred, all the betrayal, all the slavery and imprisonment, all the loneliness and separation, that somehow this was all part of God's providential plan. God used every valley and every victory of Joseph's life to not only save Egypt and the surrounding people, but to restore his relationship with his brothers and reunite him with his father. God truly meant this for good. Now, God may not use your hardships to avert a natural disaster and save millions of lives. Maybe He will. I don't know. But one thing I do know, one thing that we can count on is the fact that through every valley and every victory of life, it is part of God's perfect plan for you. That God truly will work all things together for our good and His glory. We can count on that. So when you're struggling to extend grace to someone else, when you're walking through some of the hard places and the dark valleys of life, remember God's in control. Remember you've got a good shepherd who's walking with you to guard and guide you through every step of the way. And you can turn to Him for comfort and for care because guess what? He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. He will never let you down or disappoint you. He is a good Father. So we can let go of the past. We can remember God's providence that no matter what has happened, He's going to work it together for our good and His glory. What about you? Who in your life do you need to forgive? You've been wrong. You've been deeply hurt. You've been let down. I hope that you will ask God to help you identify any unforgiveness, any root of bitterness, any grudge that you've got in your life. Ask God to reveal that to you and help you to deal with it. Remember, forgiving others is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's a command. So forgiving someone else is first and foremost an act of obedience to and trust in Jesus. You don't forgive someone because you feel like it. Often the feeling comes after the forgiving. No, we forgive others first and foremost because we trust Jesus, we're grateful for His grace, and we want to obey Him. That's why we forgive. So I'm going to close with just a few practical things for us to remember to help us do that, to help us trust and obey. First, pray for that person. Pray for God to work for their good. Listen, it's hard to hold a grudge and have hatred in your heart towards someone you're praying for on a regular basis. Praying for that person changes your heart and to the point that you really do want to see God Do something good in their life. So pray for them. Secondly, make an investment in their life by returning good for evil, as Paul said. Ask God to guide you in how and when you can do something to bless them, to meet a need in their life. And of course, if we're talking about people in our family, we have opportunities to do that every day, to invest in their life, to do something good for them, something kind for them. We've got to do that. Number three, remember that Christ has forgiven you freely by His grace. And guess what? You didn't deserve it. You deserve the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So our forgiving other people is not contingent on whether or not they deserve it. We aren't forgiven because we deserve it. We don't forgive others because they deserve it. And when God forgives us of our sin, does that mean that the sin didn't matter? Does that mean that God is all of a sudden okay with that sin because He's forgiven us? Yes or no? No. 
And so when we forgive other people, again, it doesn't mean that we're okay with what they did. It doesn't negate the evil that was done because we forgive them. So what does it then mean when we forgive them? Okay? If forgiving someone doesn't mean the offense wasn't wrong, if it doesn't mean you're giving them permission to do it again, what does it mean? Well, it means you've released them from the debt of their offense to you. They owe you nothing anymore. It means that you choose to think good things about them and do good things for them. It means that you won't bring it up and use it against them and throw it in. It means you won't get historical on them in future arguments. And it means you're not going to gossip about them and what they did to other people. You're not going to try to kill their reputation. And it means you love them as if it never happened. I read a rhyme. I did not come up with this. I wish I was this clever. But I read this great rhyme that really can help us remember and help us teach our children what it means to forgive. Good thought hurts you not. Gossip never. Friends forever. Good thought. You choose to look for the good in them. Hurt you not. You choose not to seek revenge, not to cause pain to them because of what they did. Gossip never. Again, you're not going to go spreading around talking to other people about what so-and-so said or did. Friends forever. You make the choice to elevate the relationship over the offense. I like that. That's a helpful reminder and, again, a great way to teach our children what it means to forgive. Listen, forgiveness is hard work. For God to forgive us required Jesus to bear our sin and shame on the cross. He bled and died. Forgiveness is costly. Are we willing to do the hard work, the sacrificial work of creating a culture of grace and forgiveness in our homes? Because it's not easy. Jacob, Jacob thought he had to bring all these gifts to his brother. Jacob had his head held down, limping along to Esau, preparing this humble speech to give. Joseph's brothers, the same thing. They, they had thought they had to throw themselves down at his feet in mercy and create this story to beg him not to seek revenge on them. And both of those stories remind me of a story Jesus told about the prodigal son who sold, he begged for his inheritance, denied his father, wasted it all on wicked living, and then he thought the best thing he could do is come home as a hired servant for his dad. And again, he came down the road, shuffling along, head held down in shame, with this great speech prepared, and the father came running to him and embraced him in forgiveness and grace. Neither that father, nor Esau, nor Joseph, their forgiveness wasn't merited. It was an unearnable love given out of grace and mercy. And the same is available to us. Jesus has died for your sins. He gave His all because He loves you, not because you deserved it. He wanted you to have a restored relationship with God. Jesus paid it all for you. And God the Father wants to run to you and embrace you in that grace and that mercy if you will confess your sin and turn from it and receive the gift of His grace. Have you done that? Have you come to a point in your life where you said, I need to be made right with God. I've got sin that is separating me from God. There's a break in our relationship. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, again, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to make up for the sin that you've sinned against an infinitely holy God. All you can do is come to Him and receive by faith His free gift of eternal life, forgiveness, a fresh start. If you need to do that today, I'm going to be standing down front in just a moment. I pray you'd come. Just say, David, help me to know God. Help me to know that I'm right with God. I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. We can settle that today. 
And as Christians then, if you do know Jesus, if you have experienced His grace out of that love, will you now reflect that love to others? Having received His grace, will you now extend that grace to others? Will you be willing to bury the hatchet, let go of the past, and be made right with other people? Because God has been made right with you through Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Let's pray. I hope that you would respond as God's Spirit leads today. Father, we thank You for being a God of grace and mercy. Lord, we, we can bear in our hearts, and, and, and rightly so sometimes, Lord, we can bear in our hearts a lot of pain, a lot of anguish because of what other people have done to us. We can bear in our hearts a lot of guilt and shame because of what we've done to others. But Lord, when we consider the eternal offense our sins are to You, and yet You have forgiven us, that God the Son from eternity past became flesh 2,000 years ago, lived a sinless life and died a gruesome death on the cross, taking our sin and shame upon Himself, that He willingly did that so that we could be forgiven. Lord, how can we not forgive others? How can we dare be so arrogant to think that an offense someone has caused against me is greater than any offense that I have caused against you? God, may we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And Lord, may we let go of our own guilt and shame by coming to You in faith and receiving Your grace and by going to those that we've wronged and asking for theirs. God, we pray that Your Spirit be at work in our homes and our families and in the hearts today to make right all our broken relationships. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.